Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all of the topics you're discussing in football. I'm Ian McGarry, and I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Duncan Castles, as always, but also, even more delighted, that we're joined by Christoph Terrar, who is European football correspondent for HNL, uh, national newspaper in Belgium. Welcome, Christoph. Welcome, guys. Good to have you on. Good to have you on. Now, we will be discussing the murky goings-on at Real Madrid, uh, as well as, in the dressing room, that is, of course, as well as uh, the title race um, about Romelu Lukaku's uh, renaissance in uh, in Inter Milan, uh, as well as obviously the quick fire round, which we always like to bring you on a Friday pod. First of all, though, some new breaking news and news that will, you will find interesting if you are an Arsenal fan, and that is that the transfer window has discovered that at least two agents who represent multiple clients at the Emirates Club um, have been in contact with executives there in the last seven to 10 days to discuss Unai Emery's management style. Things on the agenda that were um, made a point of were communication skills, which we know have been difficult for Emery regarding the way that he uh, gets across the way he wants to play to his players. But not just that, there's more subtle and finer things which are um, getting uh, a lot of attention in the dressing room, and that is Tactics, um, the way that tactics are explained, whether it's one-on-one or whether it's um, a game plan uh, ahead of any fixture. There's also some dissent about Emery being aloof and distant in the dressing room. Uh, The phrase, quick to criticise but slow to praise, was also mentioned with regards to the way he treats players. Uh, Not a happy dressing room, as I think we all know, with regards to Arsenal at the moment. Um, their penalty defeat in the uh, EFL Cup by Liverpool, having been 4-2 up, does not put any greater shine on Emery's reign as Arsenal manager either, Duncan. Um, I guess you can understand that um, there will be these kind of dissenting voices among senior players, but using their agents to communicate them, that's something which also is not that uncommon, is it, Duncan? No, it's something that happens quite a lot in the modern game when when players um, are upset with the manager, they'll use their representative to go to the board. I think there's been some interesting briefing from the Arsenal end and and when being asked about Emery's future and they've been insistent that they don't intend to change the coach at this stage, but also the brief has been that they feel they've done what they needed to do and it's now down to Emery to deliver um, in terms of targets on the field. And and the, the target's very clear. Um, Arsenal are on record as we have to get back into the Champions League um, at the end of this season because that's the staging post to allow us to build a team to compete for the Premier League again. Um, they're not that far off. Uh, uh, they're four points behind Chelsea at present, four points behind Leicester City, only six points behind Manchester City. Um, had they... Uh, had a better um, outcome from VAR at the weekend. That would be just a two-point um, gap. They've been quite close in a lot of games. Um, I don't think it helps Emery's 
that he got knocked out by Liverpool uh, of the, the League Cup. I think that was an opportunity for him to, to win a trophy, which could have um, calmed a lot of people down around the club. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting situation, and be intrigued to hear Christoph's views on, on where he sees Arsenal um, as a club at present. Well, I'm not really convinced. I, I'm not I'm not surprised that players and or agents are mentioning that Unai Emery is not the greatest greatest communicator. To be fair, if you yeah. look at his press conferences, if you look at his even the interviews that he gives after games and you say, wow, this man is very, very boring. And that's what loads of <laughs> journalists are, are saying too. And I, I can understand that players get frustrated. He's, he seems not really able to uh, express himself like he wants. And I don't think he has that much Spanish, uh, that many Spanish speakers in his court either, to be fair. Yeah, you have Ceballos, I think, you have Bellerin, you have Tor- Torreira. But some managers need to speak the right language to get their message across. I was once uh, by a fo- one of the Belgians who played under Simeone, who said, Simeone to England, yeah, his English is not good enough. It won't work because he works a lot on motivation too, and he wouldn't get his message across like he wants to. So maybe for Emery, it's the same problem that, yeah, he doesn't, just doesn't inspire them by not finding the right words, uh, not knowing the right words. And can understand that they are frustrated. Yeah, it's, it's a weird team to, to look at. You never know where they're going. He likes to, to adapt his team to, to opponents. So it's not what you expect from Arsenal. They have had, uh, they've had, they had a specific style under Arsene Wenger, a specific brand of football that's completely gone. Similar to what happened with Manchester United, but yeah, what what is what is his kind of football? I don't know it. He, he he seemed to have a clear style when he was at Sevilla. Was that because he had a good team with uh, with Monkey too? I don't know. So I don't know what happened uh, with him. Why it's not working here? Maybe just not the right match, not the right man for that kind of club. The most significant bit of feedback that one of the said agents who had made the call um, was given was that um, that the board and the club as a whole were aware of the shortcoming of Emery and aware that the players were, at least some of the players and maybe a lot of the players in the dressing room were concerned about the direction the club was taking. But that in the circumstances, there was no obvious candidate to replace him. Now, I think that's a fair comment. If it's the case that you have no one who you think is going to be better at the job to come in, then you stick with what you've got until such time that it becomes untenable. Duncan, would you agree with that? Would you say there was a candidate out there who is an obvious replacement for Emery who would do better? I think there are candidates out there. I think you have to be very careful when you change coach, particularly if you change mid-season, um, especially when you're not that far off the, the target for the season. And, and it's perfectly viable to see Arsenal um, getting above Chelsea and Leicester and, and reaching that Champions League qualification place. So you're, it's a big risk. They have a lot invested in the manager. I think um, I think Christoph's point uh, is an important one. Communications. Um, key 
to modern management. Um, and I think when you have a, a coach like Emery, who is who is tactically detailed, um, we know he spends a lot of time assessing the opposition and building specific plans for games. Um, we know he's a manager who in the past has been able to turn games around with tactical changes in match. That requires language, that requires good communication. And if you can't express yourself properly, which we, we can all see that Emery has trouble expressing himself in English still um, into his second year in the country. Um, yeah, I mean, frankly, he's quite painful to listen to, um, which is unfortunate, but it doesn't go past the fact that, that that's what it is. But if you have that handicap, um, then you're not going to be able to coach to the best of your abilities. And then the question becomes, is the, the 85% or the 80% version of Unai Emery sufficient to get Arsenal to where they, they want to, to go this season? There's an excellent trans- translator available. Uh, he's out of his job, to be fair. So might use him to get his uh, message across. <laughs> Chris, Christoph, I'm intrigued. Um, and just a little, you know, vignette here, if, if you will allow me. Um, I suspect Roberto Martinez does not speak in any kind of, of Belgian affiliated language, whether it's French or Flemish. How does he get his message across to the Belgian team, or is it because they're all so intelligent to speak English anyway? Uh, most of the Belgians speak English, and most of the Belgians have played in the Premier League, so he does it uh, all in English. Uh, some some players struggle a little bit with that, but yeah, all of his players, uh, all of his uh, firsts, uh, of his of his of his starting level, all of those speak English or speak a few words of English or understand the language at least, which helps. And yeah, you have a mature squad too. Like, uh, like if somebody doesn't understand something, there's always somebody who wants to help out the other one. So it's not a huge uh, problem before he had, for instance, Thierry Henry as his assistant, which helped him too, because he speaks English and French and it's usually the, 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 the French talking players who have some difficulties with English, but then Henri would help him out. So it's never been an issue in the Belgian squad because, yeah, most of the players speak English or have played in England and understand at least the basics uh, of, uh, of what's happening. And he's not that tight, tight, tactical manager either. So uh, he has his point, but it's not that they go far into detail, like I said. Conte struggled with that at, at, at Chelsea too to inspire them in his long, uh, in his long uh, video sessions at the beginning when he was there. And then he changed it around because yeah, players thought it was boring because he only knew a few words and yeah, didn't inspire them. While, for instance, in Italy, he can still do the same. He can talk for an hour in Italian during the video session and those guys won't fall asleep. So it's basically a language thing, I think. And, and press conferences, Christoph. What does Roberto Martinez do in, in Belgium? Does he use a translator or no? Um, all in all in English. Uh, most Flemish journalists are quite good at English. Some of the some some are struggling to get questions across or to understand him. But we've nobody's ever made an issue of it uh, that he doesn't speak. Yeah, he speaks a little bit of French. Uh, he, he doesn't speak Flemish at all, maybe some of the basics. But, yeah, we're basically an international country, I think, uh, that we just don't care which language he speaks. I think for, for, for the normal people who are watching TV, 
they might struggle with him. I think like Martinez will never be liked, even if he wins the, the European Championships, he will never be liked, liked by the people because there's not the connection of the language, uh, not in the French part of the country, not in the, the Dutch or the Flemish part of the country. That connection will never be there. That's why he's the most popular manager. I think if he'd spoken the language, he would have been accepted. And I think maybe sometimes less criticized. But yeah, anyway, we live in an international world nowadays where everybody wanders around. So for me, it's not a problem. But for most of the people, neither, I think. Well, I think there's a there's a point there for Arsenal to follow then, Christoph, <laughs> with regards to um, employing someone who can actually communicate and get the um, empathy with not just the players, but the fans as well. going to go to Spain now because uh, our uh, eminent guest, um, Christoph Terrer, is someone who is very, very familiar with um, all of Belgium superstars, uh, we're very pleased to say. Um, and obviously, Aiden Hazard has begun his Real Madrid career this season, uh, injured for the uh, first part, but now back playing. Thibaut Courtois in his second season, but still not. It seems uh, Christoph enjoying the easiest of rides at the Santiago Bernabeu. It seems to me, and Duncan and I have discussed this on the podcast before, it is quite a kind of, uh, I don't know, dog-eat-dog type situation um, in the dressing room there with regards to the big names and the big characters. Um, what's your take on what's been going on at Real Madrid, especially with the trials and tribulations of Zinedine Zidane since he returned as manager? Well, it's, yeah, Real Madrid, it's just politics what's happening there. It's like it's like a parliament sometimes, I think, what I'm hearing. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, Zidane, Zidane hasn't, is it, it's a, isn't the greatest manager in my eyes? Maybe for a squad that's mature, and uh, yeah, maybe he relied on on Ronaldo being brilliant. But yeah, it, they're on a difficult situation. Like most of, of uh, like a lot of top clubs, they're on at the end of a cycle. I think like with all players getting older, not getting uh, not getting to the level that they uh, that they had before. So I think that's an issue too. And then. Um, Players who've been used to managers who took them by the hand, who were pretty tactical, were uh, were brainwashed with tactics, and are suddenly getting into a team where you get barely any tactical instructions, and yeah, they are looking around and saying, "I don't, I don't know what I have to do." Other players who are already used to a certain way of playing, so it's yeah, it's it's just a little bit of a mess, I think. Maybe it comes comes good. I don't know. Uh, if all uh, if the jigsaw puzzle falls into place again, maybe. But it's just like you have a president, Florentino Perez, who wants something, who wants to put loads of pressure on the team and wants to put his stamp on this team. There's Sinidin Zidane, who didn't get all the players that he wanted. He's not happy with some of them, so he's not really unhappy. Then you have players who think that the the squad hasn't uh, hasn't been freshened enough to 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 uh, to go for for the title so it's just a club in a transition i think and maybe i was already wondering when uh, eden hazard joined chelsea when they had won the 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 champions league the season after and 
then it went slowly downwards, sometimes with the peak uh, on the, the Jose season, winning a title, winning a title with uh, on the Comte, but it was always up and down, up and down, too. And maybe he didn't join Real Madrid at the at the right moment either. Now that it's a it's a club that's only going downwards from now on if they don't invest or if they don't buy the right players. So. Uh, it's basically having a plan ready to cope with a transition. And I don't think there is a plan. It's just, oh, we buy that player. Oh, Jovic, is, he's, he has been good uh, in, in Germany for one season, um, but not good enough to play at the Real Madrid level yet, probably. So uh, it's just, yeah, basically a mess. Uh, I, I sometimes compare, I, I sometimes think it's strange the way Real Madrid are working. Like it's a, it's a president and his CEO who decide on targets. They have their advisors, but it's like, like, uh, like lower league teams sometimes with a very strong president who says we're going to do this, this, and this without having like the football knowledge that there is at at Manchester City, where they have a good team with with uh, with uh, analysts and uh, a technical director who's on the same uh, on the same boat as the manager. Same at uh, at Liverpool, where they where you see they have a plan and they're working well together. That's not happening at Real Madrid. They're not working together, and that's something you see on the pitch. That's something you feel in a dressing room full of sharks with strong characters and uh, with players who also like a bit of politics who want who, who don't want that manager coming to the club because I'm not going to play anymore and not mentioning a name, but everybody will uh, will know who I'm talking about. So it's just a political club with people playing loads of games. And I think for a newcomer, it's not easy to come into a dressing room like that. What what was the um, reception like for the two Belgians when they arrived as, as very prominent transfers for Madrid over the last two summers? Were they well, welcomed in by that shark dressing room or did they find it a difficult transition? Well, uh, Eden Hazard, he, he never has problems with or with people and he never goes into the politics. And he, uh, he already knew uh, the French guys like Benzema and... Uh, and Faram, he already been in touch about yeah, where do I have to live and stuff like that. He's close to Thibaut Courtois. Courtois is quite close to Carrot Bale too. So that's that part of the dressing room, I think. Courtois gets along with, with Sergio Ramos, for instance, too. But for Courtois, it was more difficult with the whole Navas situation because, yeah, Navas was a is considered is is not been their best uh, goalkeeper, but he's won three Champions League trophies, so he's seen as a as a club legend. And I'm so, uh, at a certain point, there comes that Belgian who's played for for the rival uh, in in Spain, who's basically an Atletico <laughs> goalkeeper, and he comes to take his place. For him, it's not been easy, but not basically in dressing room. He's never had really troubles into the dressing room, but more. Uh, what's happening outside in the outside world with media constantly on his back. And uh, that was his main problem because, yeah, there are leaks, of course. They're not held by Navas advisors either. I think that leaked stories to, to, uh, to the media. Courtois being, yeah, he's uh, quite outspoken and, quite ambitious and sometimes it looks like he's very arrogant too because 
he's pretty self-confident and that doesn't help he, his what is some of his quotes haven't helped him either by yeah bragging a little bit that i'm the best and you see that i'm the number one and not, not playing a good game but for him it's mainly from the outside he li- he likes to be there for for him it was never a matter of leaving this summer he never thought about uh about the transfer because basically he's happy with life over there so uh like most of the players, like Gareth Bale, who loves life in Spain too, and doesn't want to move. Although he's not liked by fans and uh, and media, but yeah, in the dressing room he still feels accepted, and he even speaks uh, some Spanish uh, with the guys, not with journalists, of course, but he can cope in Spanish. I'm told, so uh, that's not a huge issue either. So what? Um... Christoph, in terms of the attitude, the atmosphere, the environment in which Azar and Courtois are currently enduring, because we hear a lot about players who maybe are not happy with the manager waiting for the manager to be removed <laughs> because they've got on with the next coach better, etc., etc. Now, my experience of Eden Hazard is, is that someone is a, a very laid-back character he doesn't have problems with anyone personally. He's a very good people person. I think Thibaut is a little bit different from that. He can be a little bit irascible. He gets annoyed um, by outside comments and everything else. Yeah. But both players have moved to Santiago Bernabeu to win Champions League, to win the Liga. And yet they probably feel like they're no closer to achieving those goals. Um from when they signed to where they are now. And of course, it's early in Azar's career, but for Thibaut, definitely. Yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah, everybody, yeah, that was the main reason why they left uh, Chelsea, because they felt that with that team, they wouldn't be able to win the Champions League. So uh, for Eden, it was different. He always wanted to play for Real Madrid from childhood. And with Courtois, there was the yeah, his difficult situation with him splitting up with his girlfriend, his kids being over in Madrid. But yeah, Champions League was always a thing too for them. We want to win the Champions League once in our career. It's like, I, I don't know if I've already mentioned it on, on, on the podcast over here, but for Belgians and for most, I think for most uh, players on, uh, uh, from the continent, Still, that Champions League is much bigger than Premier League. For people in England, sometimes feel, oh, the Premier League, wow, if you've won that, that's, that's the, the simum of everything. But no, it's the Champions League. That's the one they, they saw as kids on TV. That was the only a, a competition that was uh, broadcast on, on the public net and everybody could watch it. So uh, that's what they've grown up with, with the Champions League, not with... Premier League because that was already uh, was already pay TV uh, at the end of the 90s so they haven't seen that much of the Premier League uh, either so Champions League is what they wanted but I don't see them winning it this season or that must have been a huge uh, upset or they must surprise us all and Sunsi Dumps or his uh, or the or the or his uh, or the next manager must surprise us all with great game plans and suddenly find a plan because that's not what I see with Real Madrid nowadays is that they just seem to play without a plan. So we know, we know that um, Zidane and, and Florentino Perez are at odds and we know that uh, Florentino Perez has a plan um, for uh, the succession of Zidane when he has the opportunity to 
dismiss him. What um, what do the Belgians feel about being reunited with that um, very expensive translator you were recommending to Arsenal earlier in the podcast? <laughs> I, th- I thought it was available for the Arsenal job. I read that somewhere, and the Arsenal fans were already, already, already dreaming about suddenly about Jose Mourinho. That says everything about the state of the club that they suddenly dreaming of a manager that, yeah, just wound them up for wound them up for years. But um, Eden has no problems with Jose at all. Although at at Chelsea they had, yeah. Their little issues what always happens uh, between a uh, manager and player, but he says he he wants to work. He he repeated in an interview last season that if there's one manager I want to work uh, with, it's Jose Mourinho. Basically, mentioning the reason too when all things are going right and Jose has everything he wants, he's not complaining about things. He's the best manager you can can have. He says uh, it's good for his players. He treats them well. Uh, he, he, I think uh, it's also for if, if a player is performing, Jose uh, is not constantly uh, on his back either. So that's what they like. So he wants to play with Jose. And Courtois, he has had some problems when he was at Chelsea under Mourinho. But he, he, he clearly felt that under Mourinho, Mourinho made him his number one. He pushed Czech aside. That's... Uh, that's a that's a huge move. So he feels confidence from Mourinho, and I think that Mourinho, when they once met, mentioned there might be a chance that we're working together in uh, uh, in the in the future. So I think Jose is still, in a way, a big fan of Courtois for the way he plays. He could be his ideal goalkeeper, maybe. So they uh, they uh, they don't have anything against Mourinho unless things are are exploding again, like. What can happen under Jose when uh, things are not going right? They won't like it and they won't like all his games. But if he gets them on his side and they they win trophies and they uh, they they are playing well, then they would really like him. So uh, yeah, I think you've absolutely summed up Jose Mourinho there, Christoph, uh, in your sentence. <laughs> when Jose gets everything he wants, everything works well. Um, uh, we don't like a bit of that. As, as, as many managers have said mm-hmm. in the past. But interesting, very interesting to uh, get your views on what you, th- uh, you see as the future of Real Madrid. Now, anyone um, who's familiar with Christoph and his Twitter account, certainly, uh, which is very popular um, with regards to information uh, coming out of the Belgium camp and, of course, from the very, very star-studded Belgian national team will know that um, he's a man who reports the truth and will knock down um, any rumours or things that um, have been fabricated or indeed exaggerated um, with regards to Belgian players. And that's, of course, due to his very good relationships with said Belgian players. No more, none more so, I think, Christoph, it's fair to say, than uh, the great Vincent Company, who obviously left Manchester City last season and returned to Belgium, but also Kevin De Bruyne. And um, I'd be very, very intrigued to uh, just get your view on what's happening at Manchester City this season, because things have not, I think, followed on in a way that Pep Guardiola might have expected from last year's um, treble and, of course, double title winning side. Um, Kevin himself has been exceptional since he's come back from injury. 
But clearly they're missing the influence of their captain, uh, Vincent Company, in defence. And it seems to me that, you know, that was maybe something which uh, City themselves did not actually uh, recognise would have such a profound effect, him leaving, on the stability of their defensive structure. I think they had another difficulty to replace him. That was that all their slots for for uh, for non-English or non-homegrown players were taken. So they had to do a swap deal or sign an English uh, defender. That was already a main issue. But company leaving was something they didn't expect. I think at a certain point they were sure that he would sign a new contract. Although it took it took a long it took a long, and then suddenly he told them that. In, I think it must have been April of, or May that he was leaving. So, and they didn't know what his plans were. But for company, it was already he'd already made up his mind. I think it was March when he had a few meetings with, with Anderlecht, where it was mentioned that they wanted him as a player manager and that he had a new challenge. He was looking for a new challenge, and yeah, he wanted to leave City uh, as the real legend and with three trophies. Yeah, you can say he left it. He left on the at the right moment. I think uh, also knowing his injury past, and he wouldn't have played a lot this season either. But as I'm hearing, sometimes they are missing him around. Sometimes, although he didn't play a lot, he was important in the dressing room. Company always seems to find the right words or get across the right message to players. It's like Kevin De Bruyne said before the before company's testimonial with Finney. Finney kept us constantly on our toes when when players uh, were when he felt that players would lose their head a little bit or what getting uh, getting carried away by good results. There was always that guy with loads of experience who would come in and uh, and say something oh you're not performing well, don't get carried away, stuff like that. Sometimes it was just a small speech that he gave in the dressing room, but that's something that they're missing right now. And I don't think, I don't see any big leaders anymore in that dressing room, not company-wise, who also organized uh, activities for players to do stuff together. David Silva's a completely different player. He's a quiet, quiet guy, a nice guy. It's not like company who has the charism too. It's I remember Kyle Walker once uh, mentioning to me uh, um, when I talked to him uh, with when he was with England. We were talking about about the Belgian players, and uh, uh, I asked him, "Do you know what company's nickname is uh, in the Belgian dressing room?" And he said, "Yeah, is it uh, the president?" I said, "No." But you're close, it's Obama. And he says, yes, I know why. Every, <laughs> every, time, every time somebody has, a, has to give a speech or something's happening, he's on the front row with his finger in the air saying, I want to speak, I want to speak. And that's basically him. That's company. That's the, the guy who sticks up for the guys too. When there's an issue with the manager, he will confront that. When they want an extra day off, he will go to the manager and say, uh, manager we will take it we i want we want the day off we're going to do this this and that and make make sure we will be good in training that's the guy yeah it's it's like a politician uh looking after looking after his party and that's something they are missing out given the burner is in his way a leader on the pitch when he's on the pitch he's 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 pep's architect you always see that when uh 
when Pep wants to make tactical changes, he calls uh, Kevin over and Kevin translates everything that Pep wants onto the pitch. And I'm not surprised that they lost a few games this season when Kevin was not starting because he leads them by example, not with uh, with uh, with with his mouth like companies, not constantly uh, constantly saying what they have to do or constantly encouraging him. He does it with his feet. But uh, yeah, they're lacking somebody who keeps them on their toes. And um, yeah, Kevin is completely in the dressing room. He's he's like the quiet guy. He will never be a big leader like company either, a big talker because. Yeah, it's not his character, completely different character. And yes, it will be a difficult one to it's a difficult one to replace. Um he was he was he was outstanding. Company was outstanding at at the end of the season too. Uh I think thanks to him, yeah, they won the title. That goal against Leicester, he will he will never score a goal like that. It's it's never happened in training sessions. Either I'm told he's never scored a goal like that. So um yeah. Um yeah, how do you place, replace a guy like that? I don't know. If they had keep it, kept him on board, it would be it would have been more in an ambassador role, only playing 10, 15 games in a Premier League season. Um, is that the right way for for Pep? That might have been the right way to keep him, but for him, he's too ambitious. He he still wants to play. He still thinks, although he's had a lot of injuries, that he can achieve everything uh, in his career and he doesn't want to leave as a, as a, he didn't want to leave as uh, as just the ambassador so yeah it's it's a difficult one but i think city are struggling and are thinking we shouldn't have let him go maybe we should have been been uh, talking to him earlier maybe we we would have we should have offered him uh, a, a new contract uh, in the season 2017 uh, to, to uh, 2018, but that's also maybe it's the manager to blame or the technical director to blame for that because there were always doubts about this, uh, about this, uh, about his fitness. Like injury wise, he was keep, he was getting on injured every time, and then he came back injured again. So uh, I can understand them why they didn't move that fast because every every time they were thinking about giving him a new contract he got injured again so it was a difficult one to solve but I think yeah, definitely what was happening now in the defence and having not signed a replacement they're missing him Christoph um, we, we were talking earlier today about the possibility of this being Pep Guardiola's last season at Manchester City it's something we've discussed in the podcast recently um, Vincent Company is a player who has been suggested as a future Manchester City manager. Can you talk us through um, why, how his first season as a manager has been at Anderlecht and, and why they're so far down the, the Belgian um, top division at present? Well, it's a bit of a car crash, I must admit. Uh, I think he underestimated uh, the job. He, uh, he inherited a very imbalanced squads uh, and yeah he wanted to, to push the pep revolution on them by passing game and uh, yeah the, not tiki taka but basically Manchester City the football that they were playing like uh, suffocating the opponent with lots of press and uh, that's what he wanted to play but you're underestimated that this squad was not able to do that or not 
uh, didn't have the quality to do that. They did a few signings that haven't worked out well. I still don't know why he signed, for instance, Samir Nasri, who, uh, who was at his best uh, this season uh, at the company testimonial. That was the best level we've seen from him against <laughs> against uh, some old men. So, um, yeah, um, yeah. since then, Anderlecht is a, is a, is a weird club too with a... With uh, with a president, yeah, he he bought uh, Marek Kuka, He bought the club um, two years ago. He used to be the owner of uh, first the cycling team, then he bought uh, a smaller football club called Stende, and then he moved on to Anderlecht when he got the opportunity to buy them. And he's a bit, yeah, he's a bit like uh, I'm not going to compare him to Florentino Perez because with. Paris does sometimes you feel that there's still a little plan with him. He thinks he can tell a manager in the dressing room, you have to do this, this, and that. It has happened with previous managers. And yeah, now you have that Vincent company who's, who rolls out all of his plans, get, uh, get the permission to do it. He plays with loads of youngsters. The way they played in the first few games was uh, fantastic to see. You see, you saw the same patterns at City. You saw similarities with uh, mm-hmm. with what Pep Guardiola does. You saw that Vincent Company was far better than uh, all of these uh, players in his squad, and he saw passes that nobody else uh, would have ever seen in his squad. But still, they didn't get results. They they didn't have a striker, for instance, at that point. They'd signed Kim Aruf from uh, from Leeds, but he was injured uh, till uh, till September, so they couldn't score goals. And then they started signing other players because they saw, oh, we're not getting results. They signed Nasser Shatley, which is a good signing. They used him everywhere. I think he he played in all positions from left back, left wing back, uh, left wing back, left winger a second striker and stuff like that. And he scored a lot of goals. But when results are not coming, and Anderlecht is still a top club and a household name in Belgium, there you have the president saying, oh, our philosophy that we had uh, three months ago, I want results now. So companies, uh company was helped out by Simon Davis, who... I uh, was head of uh, training or something at uh, at Manchester City and had been an assistant manager for the under-21 team. He was basically company's head coach. He, uh, he decided on tactical things during a game. He, uh, he, he had to make the substitutions. And yeah, that wasn't the right man at the right place. So um, he got promoted to the man who uh, puts the cones now on the pitch and they uh, <laughs> signed uh, they signed a new uh, head coach Frank Verkoutre who also an Anderlecht legend who's had success with with Anderlecht before he's played in the Champions League with Anderlecht uh, when uh, yeah 10 years 10 15 years ago he won the title uh, with Racing Genk um 8 years ago he was the man uh, who dropped Courtois and De Bruyne into the team and made them important. So it's a guy, it's one of the best Belgian uh, managers that we've had in the last few years. But he's quite, he's quite, he likes efficient football. He looks at results first. And if I have a good uh, defensive organization, then we'll see what happens after. And he's now looking for a balance between the company philosophy and getting results. 
So there you see, he, he's constantly talking to company and constantly in touch with him, but you see that he's now pulling the strings. So company is also injured for the, for the, for the third time isn't really the manager at the moment. So he's back to the player. He still decides on philosophy. He's the man of the long-term plan. But there's another one who de- decides now on the short, short-term planning. So I don't think he's ready for Manchester City yet. So he's basically a player sporting director. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I don't let you have another sporting director, Frank Arneson, got sacked. He was... Uh, technical director so it's a coming and going of people to add on the net so it's not a really stable club at the moment so uh yeah we'll have to see what uh what happens but yeah he's player sporting director or head of uh, philosophy and long-term planning or something like that so in england christoph frank arneson was known as a teflon man yes because nothing stuck uh, so any mistakes he made at Spurs and then Chelsea, nothing got blamed on him because it just slipped away. So I just wonder if Frank's going to finally come under the scrutiny, <laughs> which perhaps uh, is good to uh, find him out. Yeah, but he he hasn't uh, he hasn't blamed for anything at Anderlecht either. He was uh, there. You go, was, Teflon man. Yeah, he was he was <laughs> he, he was opposed to the plan to appoint company as a player manager. But then he had a meeting with company and apparently company must have convinced them with tactical plans and his whole vision. And then um, Arneson was on board too. And they said, this is the first time I hear a player talking like that. It's the first time since Johan Graf that I've seen somebody with these ideas. It's basically Pep's philosophy and Pep has got a lot from Johan Graf and that has been recycled. So he saw oh, a guy with a vision, and he was on board too. But then after a while, he saw that he was left out of the meetings with uh, with, uh, with company and their managing director, uh, Michael Verschuren, is quite important too and likes to call himself a sporting director too. So, yeah, and then he wasn't involved in deals anymore and then he didn't know, Arneson didn't know, oh, we've signed that player. Oh, oh we signed him. I didn't know about that, and then you feel that he was pushed. Uh, he was pushed uh, to the exit. That was already uh, at the end of uh, August that he felt, "Oh, it feels like I'm uh, I'm pushed out." But he he stayed there until uh, until they sacked him. I think it was the day before or the day after his birthday. He had cakes. Uh, he took cakes uh, to the club, and then um, the managing director said, "Yeah, Frank, we have to have a meeting." And then he felt what was going to happen. <laughs> the cakes turned a little stale. Yes. <laughs> we have to mention that uh, on Wednesday night, um, a certain Manchester City striker, um, Marcus Rashford, scored, scored two um, goals, one from penalty, one from free kick, and um, put them through to the quarterfinals of the EFL Cup. Hardly a renaissance uh, in the full gamut of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's reign. But Christoph, um, Romel Lukaku has rediscovered his form, his touch, his goal-scoring ability at Internazionale in Milan since his move in the summer. Um, give us an insight, please, into how that has happened under Antonio Conte and how Lukaku has transformed not just his form, but I think his um, his way of thinking, his life outlook he seems to be much happier than he was 
when he was struggling a little bit in Manchester? Well, if you sign Lukaku as a club, you have to know his background. Oh, yeah, it's all psychology. So Romelu Lukaku and his brother, they grew up in a really small village in Belgium as the only two black guys. And they've always felt like a little bit of outcast. Oh, people are looking at us. Uh, um, oh, we are, during games, they got like uh, uh, racially abused sometimes. They, they fe- I've always felt a little bit like we're the outsiders. And um, they have to feel love. They don't re- easily trust people. And when they don't feel love, they're not going to perform. And that's what happened at Manchester United when yeah, Jose signed him, Jose convinced him, and yeah, he felt love from Jose. He still calls him the boss. He still loved Jose, although they had their, they had their, their arguments too at Manchester United because it's two strong characters against each other. And it's, uh, he likes those discussions with Jose, to be fair, but he still loves him. When Ole Gullis Sosa got in, he never felt loved by Solskjaer. He felt, oh, he's, uh, he's, uh, he, he's going to go for, for Rashford as a number one. And he'd hoped that uh, Solskjaer would have said, Rom, I count on you. You're my number two, but you will, uh, you will play a lot. He made him some promises, but I think Lukaku felt like, hmm, he's never going to fulfill these promises. And... Yeah, he, he needs love to perform. It's always been mentioned by his former managers. He needs love. And Antonio, he knows, he knew that when he was moving this summer, at a certain point, there was even talk of him going to Juventus. There were talks with Juventus. He agreed to go to Juventus. But going to Comte was always going to be the right move for him because Comte tried to sign him for Juve in 2014. And Comte tried to sign him for Chelsea in 2017 when Comte sees him as the ideal striker for him, loves him, builds him up. It's a way like the relationship he has with Roberto Martinez. It's the same. Roberto Martinez has been treating him with loads of love and then he suddenly starts performing. So it's all about feeling love, feeling appreciated because he's never had that in his youth. He always had to fight against things. He always uh, heard uh, people laughing at him, even when he was a youth player, um, laughing at his first touch. He's technically not good enough for a team like Anderlecht, who are more like the Barcelona of Belgium, beautiful way of playing. He's always had to fight against, uh, against the perception. Nobody, he's never felt liked anywhere. And when he then feels love, he suddenly... Yeah, it's going to bolster and goes to wow. I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm loved, and then he gives a lot of love, love back too because it can Lukaku can be a very difficult guy when things are not going well and when he doesn't feel loved. He pushes, he pushes for, uh, yeah, he pushes himself towards the exit himself because he doesn't want to be with people that don't love him or when he feels that he's not liked by people, he wants to get away. He wants to be in a positive. Uh, environment i think and that's why he pushed for for that move too uh, immediately when uh, when Solskjaer was announced as the permanent manager we know lukaku is going to push for a move or try to get uh, get a move to to italy that was uh, that was written in the stars at that point so and at inter 
He's been welcomed by the squad. He'd already learned Italian before he went there. He prepared for the move so he could communicate with, with his teammates. So he walks in and speaks already Italian. What the Italians in the squad, of course, liked. Oh, a guy who already speaks our language and he's not been here, basically. Um, yeah, them during at United, it's been mentioned now for, for, it was mentioned for one and a half years. People said he was overweight, definitely had too much muscle, maybe a little bit too much uh, fat too. Um, and then at Inter, they did the medicals. And then the nutritionist immediately told, told him, we're going to do some extra tests. And they found out that he had somewhere a digestive problem. So they put him on a very strict diet. And I think he lost five or six kilos. And that's something you see too. From He's fitter, he's sharper. Training sessions of uh, Conte are pretty hard. Lots of, uh, in preseason, lots of running, lots of uh, physical stuff. But he looks sharp now he looks like the Lukaku that joined Manchester United he was sharp and fit too and he scored a lot of goals in his first I think in his first 11 games he scored 12 goals too and then he suddenly started struggling so we'll have to see how this works out now at Inter but yeah he feels the love and you see the connection he has with Antonio Conte every time he scores he runs to uh, Conte to giving him a hug um, yeah, it works between those two. It's like the natural match. So yeah, with some managers, you have that match. With some, you don't. Plus, he likes to play with Lautaro Martinez too. Lukaku has always been known in Belgium to be good in a system with two strikers too because then not, the, not all the burden is on him. He has somebody moving around him, which helps him out. Being not the greatest technician, although... Uh, I saw his two last games and I have barely seen any bad touches either. So that's confidence too. So he feels confident. He liked to play with Lautaro Martinez, who is in my eyes uh, yeah, really good striker. And yeah, it works. They have they have that connection too. Sometimes there's not the real connection yet yet with midfield and knowing where he has to run if Brozovic or Sensi uh, places the ball. But yeah, he feels uh, he feels loved in that group too. So it's all about love for Lukaku, I think. Well, two two things, Christoph. One one I can tell you that um, Lukaku is not the only player, uh, senior Manchester United player, to play for Solskjaer and feel like he was made promises um, by the new manager, which uh, the manager didn't fulfil and uh, and isn't happy. Uh, with his situation because of it. And the second, your, your story about um, Inter discovering uh, the digestive problem that uh, Lukaku had reminds me of a uh, interview I did with uh, Patrice Evra after he'd been at Juventus for um, best part of two seasons. And uh, Patrice told me that uh, he arrived at Juventus with uh, a problem that he'd had for most of his career, which was he he he. he was sick after almost every training session and, and match and was kind of infamous for it in the dressing room. And uh, Juventus, with that sort of degree of medical attention that is typical of an Italian club, were saying, look, this isn't normal. Um, let's do an investigation. They did an investigation. They found he had a stomach ulcer and uh, told them, you know, it's a miracle you haven't actually started bleeding into your, your stomach. It's that bad. Um, and traced it to... Um, 
he was taking a lot of anti-inflammatories um, and had done for his entire Manchester United career to kind of deal with uh, with a, a initially a pubic um, problem he'd had. Um, and uh, they, they then gave him medicine to resolve that and uh, and got him in a better physical state by his own testimony the, than he had been for the majority of his career. So I think that's it's quite interesting that um, two very prominent Manchester United players have uh, managed to go through the medical system there and uh, and not have these kind of issues detected. And then they move to Italy and, and they get resolved inside a matter of uh, months. Yeah, it's yeah. Italians have always been known for that. I remember that the I, I once did an interview years ago with uh, the Belgian uh, the Belgian uh, doctor Jean Pierre Meersman, who was uh, head of uh, of the Milan lab. He was uh, he was basically uh, deciding everything over there, and they yeah, it it went from small things from uh, from toothache. Yeah, your tooth are bad, your teeth are bad. Uh, that's why you get injuries connections like that finding everywhere connections in the body oh you've had you've broken your nose three months ago there's now a chance that you might get uh, a groin injury in a few months so and then anticipating on that so it was all things connected in the body and they're just great i think it's been said by a few doctors like the old english system was uh, they always used to laugh at the, the medical systems in uh, in England until ten years ago? It has changed because they have had yeah loads of experience from uh, from foreign foreign doctors now too. Uh, with yeah, City basically having having their Catalan medical staff with an Italian uh, with an Italian doctor being there since uh, Roberto Mancini uh, was the manager. Chelsea having uh, Paco Biosca over there who used to. Be, was a well-known uh, Spanish doctor, so that has changed. But I don't know the situation at Manchester United. To be fair, who's head of me- medical staff over there? But yeah, it's always been an issue when they at the continent they were pointing at England. Yeah, the the medical things in England are not going like it has to be. They're a little bit behind. They have caught up at a lot of clubs nowadays. I think, but I don't know what happened at Manchester United, but. That digestion problem, it's something they should have found out too, or they should have done. They put him on a di- uh, Lukaku on a diet uh, last season too, after Jose basically told him, uh, You're overweight, Romelu, get a diet, but not on specifically finding what do you have to eat, what's right for you. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's weird, but it's. Also, I think sometimes a mental thing, uh, like for players when they find something like better, if they're in a better in a better club, or that they feel more like, it, then they accept advice from doctors easier or from nutritionists uh, when they're feeling better. Okay, it's fine, I will do that, and then they also believe that it's working. Uh, I think the placebo effect sometimes helps too. Very true, Christoph, and I remember very famously. Uh, I did an interview with David Beckham when he went on loan to um, Milan and uh, he had had some consistent hamstring problems and the uh, one of the chief doctors uh, AC Milan said Yeah, this was uh, Jean, Jean-Pierre Meersman the one was, I was, talked was to. Yeah, 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 he yeah. Was still, he, he was, talked about, he said, have, you're wisdom teeth. 
But he wasn't. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's him. That's him. Definitely. Come through. And he and he yeah. said, no, they haven't. And he said, well, we're going to take you and we're going to extract your wisdom teeth. And yeah. he didn't have a hamstring problem after that, having had consistent hamstring problems yeah. for more than two years. So it just shows you, doesn't it, that uh, the application of a much more um, widespread theory of medicine uh, cannot change a player's uh, way of thinking, but also obviously his body and the way it reacts to injury. It's Friday's podcast, obviously. So before we go into the uh, legendary quickfire round, which I hope will be legendary in its quickfire nature, uh, given Duncan's legendary non-quickfire nature, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Christoph just to quickly give us an update on what has been one of the transfer sagas, Christoph, of the last two years, and that is Toby Alderweireld at Spurs. Um, out of contract, of course, at the end of this season, have you got any update for us with regards to where he is in terms of, well, staying at Spurs or not staying at Spurs, or where might he be next season? Waiting for the right offer to come in. So the one who gives him uh, the best contract will win, I think. So uh, he won't move to China because he's always been uh, like a guy who's... Uh, who wants to be close to home as a kid. He was, uh, he was often homesick when he was playing in uh, Amsterdam. He didn't like it over there because he wanted to be closer to home, to his family. So he won't move to China, I think. But he's just waiting for, for the right offer to come in. Roma were interested uh, during the summer. They made, uh, they, uh, they got in touch with uh, Spurs. I don't even know if they made a formal offer, but they were interested. So I think, yeah. It's the ideal profile, just like his uh, compatriot out of contact, Jan Vertonghen. Thirty uh, players in their thirties, ideal for Italian clubs looking for bargains, like uh, players out of contract. So I think there will be some Italian interest for him, just like Inter have been interested in Vertonghen already for for a few years, and Antonio Conte is looking for for backups in his defence that he, they might look, oh, that for Tongan, that would be a good option. He can play football. He can, he's good playing out from the back. He, he has a good long ball. He might suit our football and he's a bargain. We need four or five defenders instead of the three, four we have now. So we sign him on. So uh, might happen to Alderweireld too. So um, yeah, they are waiting. They're waiting. I don't think Spurs, Spurs know if he, did, if he didn't accept the contract one and a half year ago, if he rejected that money, they're not coming back with a better offer now because he's uh, two years older too and they won't give him the four or five years he would have got um, two years ago, the, ones, the one he rejected. So I think they already know that uh, that world is leaving and yeah, they won't push for it. The, on the other side, Alderweireld, for instance, is still... Pochettino's first choice in defence. He has played uh, most games. I think he's only been rested against uh, Red Star in the in the Champions League and against uh, Colchester in the in the League Cup. So so it seems that he's his first choice, which is strange because at a certain point he didn't after his injury he didn't play him anymore. He, uh, he even didn't mention him anymore in press conferences. He was praising. All of his uh, defenders at that point, uh, Vertonghen, uh, Foyt, Eric Dyer, they all got compliments, but Alderweireld wasn't mentioned. As Davinson Sanchez got compliments, wasn't even mentioned. And suddenly, Alderweireld is still the first choice, but 
he anticipated on everything well. He just made sure before every preseason that he was fit, 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 and fitter than fit. He trained a lot during his holiday this season too because he knows how uh, Pochettino works. He wants his players as fit as possible. They have loads of fitness tests. And when you score good points on that, he will pick you. And Alderweireld has played that out well. So he's first choice now, but I still think he's leaving at the end of uh, end of the season. Although, never say never in football, of course. <laughs> A great phrase that everyone <laughs> likes to use now and again, Christoph. Um, Alderweireld, be interesting to see what happens with him. As Christoph says, he's become first choice again, regardless of the contract uh, devised that uh, sports have with the Belgian international. To move before the quickfire round to a story that Duncan Castles, as ever, exclusively revealed on the transfer window, which was that a senior delegation of Manchester United would attend uh, the future investment event in Saudi Arabia. That has been the case. And Duncan, you can bring us up to date because the event has begun and we have already seen evidence of that Manchester delegation and indeed the seniority of it. Yes, it, it, it's been uh, it's a three-day event, the Future Investment Initiative uh, annual event in Saudi Arabia. We've seen Richard Arnold, uh, one of the senior directors, um, talking at that event. I can tell you that he um, has been accompanied to Saudi Arabia by one of the senior Glazer family members, Avi Glazer, as my understanding, has also gone there, and he is one of the two most influential members of on the uh, the Manchester United board. Um, Arnold attended uh, uh, an event at the uh, the family home um, of one of the senior ministers in the um, Saudi Arabian government last night. Um, multiple ministers of state were present at that event at the Abu Sak family residence in Riyadh. Um, so uh, as predicted on the on the podcast, um, senior Manchester United delegation in Saudi Arabia talking to very influential people in the Saudi government at a time in which we know that uh, Saudi Arabia is looking um, at copying the Abu Dhabi Qatar model buying a prominent um, European football club and using it for um, political purpose, for um, PR purposes, um, to try and project uh, a positive image of the of the state in the West. Um, and at a time at which, as, as we detailed on the transfer podcast, um, the Glazers have been had one of those family members convert their shares from the the high vote um, holding B class shares t- uh, to the um, the lower vote holding A class shares, which are available to sale to for sale, um, and which um, Ian Yu revealed was something of a, a fishing tactic on Indeed. the part of the Glazer family. And think it continues to be from um, sources in both the city in London and in New York Stock Exchange. There have certainly been discussions with regards to what that particular um, uh, secession from um, Kevin Glazer was with regard to future intention of the Glazer family. Um, As you said, Duncan, before the pod, with um, revenues forecast to decrease in the next financial year for Manchester United, it may well be that um, both this visit to Saudi Arabia, as well as the movements in the NYSE, 
that the Glazers are considering their options with regards to a sale of the club. To slightly more, well, I would say more lighter, but they're not really lighter because we're going to do a quick fire round now with regards to who we think might be the next manager to be sacked in the Premier League. It's a common competition. It's almost, you know, like Halloween has passed and you duke the apples, as Duncan will know, when you either do it with your teeth or you put a fork into your basin and see if you can find one. Uh, which Apple will turn up the next manager to be sacked in the Premier League. We've got some candidates to consider between our, myself and Duncan and Christoph. I think we have to look at Unai Emery at Arsenal, at Marco Silva uh, at Everton. But I'm open to debate on all these things. Duncan, I'm going to call on you first for a quick fire round. And please tell us who the next manager you believe will be sacked by a Premier League club. Well, what I can tell you is that talking to agents this week um, and I can tell you that the, the jobs that are being targeted by agents who are very much aware that this is sacking season, you've got the last international break before the transfer window coming up, are in particular Newcastle United and Everton. Um, and I think they're correct to be targeting those clubs. Um, what I would say is that I think Marco Silva is in a very difficult position at Everton and that uh, people on the board now feel that they may have made a mistake in that appointment. Um, I think they want to avoid sacking him um, because they have a lot invested in that appointment. But there is certainly a search going on and a consideration they might have to change. Um, so... Who's the most likely to go? Um, I think it's probably Hassan Hoodle at Southampton. <laughs> oh, Christoph, is Duncan still in your thunder there, or indeed the the the, uh, the the bullet in your chamber? Well, when a club says their manager is safe and that they are going to look into things, a manager gets wary. What's going to happen with me? I think it's a good show, but I also think Marco Silva is in a bad position too. Uh, so... Uh, Everton have been hearing around or with 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 agents if uh, which options uh, are available or, or, or the other way around agents offering uh, managers to Everton so they know where they are. I don't see Newcastle sacking Steve Bruce that, that early. I think I'm also wondering what for for, for instance what will happen at Norwich if they uh, if they keep on losing games that might be like one of the surprises like they. He's done a brilliant job with, with the squad, but what if they keep on losing? What will happen then? So uh, that's another option. But I think Elf House and Little is a good shout. Very good point about Norwich there, uh, Christoph, because um, despite the fact that it's been seen as a family club and one which you know will not sack easily and will indulge a manager who has obviously achieved great success in terms of getting them into the Premier League, as champions, um, the consequences of losing Premier League status financially are so great that teams like, you look at Huddersfield last season, they sacked their a managers, got them up, simply because it looks like they're going to lose their Premier League status and someone else can do a better job or at least have that um, dreadful phrase coined by Ian Dowie so many years ago, Crystal Palace, bounce back ability, um, where they're able to um, have that kind of bounce off 
uh, effect of employing a new manager in order to um, affect or at least hope that they can get uh, further up the table and avoid relegation. I tend to um, agree with both of you and Marco Silva. I think that uh, if you look at the aspects of his appointment, if you look at the issues around um, when he has been appointed and the players that they have invested in and the results which have been achieved since then, then I think Silva has to be the man with the target on his back. However, I would say that speaking to people in the game, that Everton, um, who have not been known to be very um, uh, considerate and uh, in terms of their way of getting rid of people or managers, etc., etc., they, they tend to do it in a knee-jerk reaction type way, um, are looking at their different options with regards to a new coach and thinking, have we got someone out there who we can bring in who we are confident and are in agreement can make a big difference to what Silva's doing now? And at the moment, I don't think they have that name. So I, I, I think, and I, you know, I'm not going to put my um, neck on the line here because I think dead man walking period, which is the international break uh, in November, is coming up. But I do think that uh, it's going to be more about who can they get rather than who's get sacked first. Uh, and I see that as being the key to whoever does get the um, uh, poignant trigger and fired in the quickfire round that we have just discussed. Should also uh, add, I should also add that the agents are asking a lot of questions about um, Manchester United's faith in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Um, that's a big talking point still, uh, regardless of the, the three away wins he's put together in the last week. But again, Duncan, um, the question is, who would they get to replace him? I mean, Massimo Allegri is obviously the obvious and most available of all managers. But untried in England, obviously, only ever worked in Italy, um, but has, as you revealed in the podcast two weeks ago, spent three weeks in London learning English, um, clearly targeting a job in England. Um, would you want to take on a basket case like Manchester United, having worked in a stable environment like Juventus for such a long time? It's a very different animal. Yeah, Allegri would prefer to wait, as we've talked about in the podcast, and and I think the calculation here is also um, Manchester United would probably prefer to wait. Um, I think uh, uh, it's usually easier to appoint a big name manager, and make a significant change as seasons change. Um, therefore, if they can have Solskjaer run them through to the end of the season um, and make uh, make the big reveal, the big appointment of a of a, a, a coach with a far greater track record in football, that uh, could be the way that they decide to go. Yeah, and it's not the the, the, the period of uh, the real interim managers anymore, like the Goose Hiddings and Big Advocates and uh, Avram Grants of this world. It's uh, they, they are not around anymore either because Dick Advocate, I think he, he's now a uh, Feyenoord manager. He signed for them uh, two days ago. So they're not around either. So... Uh, I'm I'm looking looking around for managers too, and I said, who would go to Everton? It's it's a difficult one to find one that would leave. Is if if it's somebody from abroad, it will be somebody who's performing well with his club, is uh, is challenging for 
first places over there or for, for a European ticket? Would he leave that for a mess like Everton has been over the last few seasons? Not sure about that either. So uh, they will have I'm to sh- find one the Watford way suddenly suddenly somebody out of a of a basket somewhere we found here <laughs> even he wants to manage a laundry team. basket Christoph. the laundry but ba- oh yeah there's still more the laundry, the basket. laundry basket yeah what's, uh, what's louis, louis faria doing now nowadays <laughs> <laughs> i think you've got the question right to the per- right person <laughs> Rui Faria is in a, uh, working in laundry baskets in Qatar where he's top of the league and, uh, and winning trophies but I, I, I heard the mention of Avram Grant and I'm sure Avram Grant would come running at well Manchester United to ask him to be their interim manager but I, I, I think even the Glazers and Ed Woodward would uh, balk at that one Avram G and Avram G it would be a good com- combination ah, to be fair G and I, I agree with Christoph <laughs> Yeah, and uh, maybe you could finally shake off that um, nom de plume he had at Chelsea as the Undertaker. <laughs> it's yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I had a I had a good I had a good uh, chat with him during the during the World Cup. I think it was in Brazil. He was twice on the on the same bus as I was, and he had a good chat. He was, it was great in talking, great stories. Oh, Christoph, share, so. he loves a chat. He loves yeah. a chat. He yeah. does. Great last stories time, last, last I heard. Time, yeah, the last time I saw him, he said to me, which Chelsea manager have you sacked now? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much to Christophe Terrar, who is the European football correspondent for HLN newspaper, uh, which is based in Belgium. But he is a man who obviously is around town and very cosmopolitan. If you run into him, then please say hi from the Transfer Window podcast because... As you've heard in the last hour, he's a very, very knowledgeable and entertaining man and will certainly, certainly treat you to a good conversation over a pint of beer, that's for sure. Um, Duncan Castles as well, who's joined us, of course, uh, as always, a thank you. Um, We like to engage you in our debates and everything you've heard on this podcast and indeed this week or anywhere else um, in our archive of podcasts uh, if you want to continue the debate then please do um, at Duncan Castles at Transfer Podcast um, Christoph has got a very interesting Twitter handle which is at HLN in England um, which I think definitely underestimates his uh, influence in world football it's but outdated we'll... now so exactly you have to change it Christoph yeah, you have to but, change it. But you can't change your brand that easily. So uh, it's a branding <laughs> thing. It's, it's a branding uh, thing. Yeah, yeah that's, you sound that's like what, Ed Woodward. You sound yeah, like I Ed Woodward. To say, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> it's all about the clicks and the interactions, and they know the name, so I can't so, change it. So Christos, five and a half billion Facebook followers will be disappointed if he changes his HLN in England handle, uh, just like Ed Woodward would be if Manchester did, did the same. Um, uh, in a much more, hum- um, well, let's just say, uh, term of humility, I am at Garbo SJ, and you can contact me if you like. Abuse is always accepted. Uh, other than that, if you liked what you heard, please log on to iTunes. As you know, give us a five-star review, and we can expand this community, which is ever-expanding. Um, this has been Friday's Transfer Window podcast. And we look forward to seeing you again on Monday. And until then, we will see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening.